This is a work of fiction. Honest. Ragbag presents Brollywood, episode 8. Written and performed by Frank Burton. The story you're listening to right now is being released as a book, by the way. It will also be called Brollywood. It's the third in the Ragbag series, the first two being Everything I Am and Getting Away With It. Don't worry if you're not familiar with those books or the original podcast that spawned them. This is a good place to start. If you like what you hear, please consider supporting this show by buying several copies of all three books and giving them away to everyone you know, or just give one book to one person. That's a reasonable start. Let's get on with the story. Later, when I got home, Noddy texted. So, you're definitely on for next week? Definitely, I texted back. What's the worst that could happen? Noddy apparently took this to be a rhetorical question and said nothing in response. I spent the rest of the day wondering what the answer to that question was. What if the security guards somehow sussed out our scheme prior to us replacing their guns with duds? This in itself would be extremely unlucky, given that replacing the weapons was stage one of the plan. Once the guns were replaced, anything else would be fine. If they caught us in the act, we'd be shown the door. Benedict would be embarrassed and could never show his face there again, but that wouldn't be the end of the world. All things considered, this heist of ours was just going to be a bit of a laugh. I spent the weekend practising my Scottish accent, pacing around my bedroom trying out pronunciations. Uncle Claude overheard me and asked me what I was up to. I told him I was writing a new book featuring a Scottish character and was talking aloud to try and find the character's voice. "'I don't know what that means,' said Claude, "'but well done. Sounds very interesting. "'Just one word of advice, Frank, Miss Scottish character. "'Don't make him a tightwad.' "'Why would I do that?' I said. "'Well, that's the stereotype, isn't it? "'You don't want to make him a stereotype, do the opposite. "'Make him a generous sort of bloke.' "'Good idea,' I said. "'And don't put him in a kilt,' he said. I've been to Glasgow a couple of times. Believe it or not, I didn't see a single kilt the whole time I was there. Later that day, I ordered a kilt from Amazon. Claude was right, of course. It would be fairly ludicrous for me to insert a kilted Scottish character into a 21st century novel. By the same logic, if a con artist wanted to steal £100 million from a private bank by dressing as Marty Pello, wearing a kilt would be a ridiculous thing to do. Therefore, I should wear a kilt. On Monday, I drove down to Lincolnshire and booked into the hotel where I'd agreed to meet up with Benedict. We were 24 hours away from stage one of the plan. The kilt still hadn't arrived, but that was okay. Stage one of the plan required me to play the role of the weapons specialist, and I had a suit pack for that. When I tracked the order online, I discovered the delivery was due to take place on Wednesday morning, the day of the heist. Unfortunately, I'd set the delivery address as Uncle Claude's place. There's no way I could have driven to Manchester and made it back to Lincolnshire in time to rob the bank. I decided to order a second kilt, paying a bit extra for next day delivery. Stage one went according to plan. 
I won't bore you with the details. Benedict introduced me as the weapons specialist. He dropped the boxes off in the vault while I popped off to switch the guns over. No one considered either of us to be in any way suspicious. The only very slight tweak to the plan was that Benedict had miscalculated how heavy the boxes for the vault would be and required the help of not one but two security guards in carrying them down the stairs. This was all fine as it turns out. Again, neither of the men questioned Benedict's motives for storing the boxes in the back and seemed genuinely interested by his claims that they were props for a superhero film. They were rather too interested, actually, Benedict said. I ended up labouring the point a little. What did you say to them? I said. I said, no one's allowed to peek inside these boxes. And then, just for emphasis, I added, on pain of death. You don't think they took that the wrong way, do you? I assume it wasn't interpreted as an actual death threat, if that's what you mean. Good. When we got back to the hotel, I was pleased to discover the kilt had arrived. I put it on over the weapons inspector's suit, which I still had on. It fit nicely. You're not actually going to wear that thing, are you? said Benedict. It's a double bluff, I said. No one in their right mind would attempt to pass themselves off as a famous Scottish pop star by wearing a kilt. Therefore, I am Marty Pello. No, you're not, said Benedict. You know what I mean. I'm not sure that I do. Trust me, I'll feel a lot more comfortable in the role if I can dress the part. Fine, he said. We spent the evening in the empty hotel bar, quietly running through the details of what would happen the next day. As far as I can tell, Scarzi is scheduled to be there, said Benedict. You're ready for him, right? You know which buttons to press to get this man's goat? Easy, I said. Make fun of his puppet theatre, then accuse him of being anti-Scottish. It'll be a breeze. We had a little too much to drink and I woke up with a bad head the next day. In a way, having a hangover was a nice distraction from what was about to happen. Rather than become preoccupied with nerves, I just felt a little bit lousy instead. The time came to enter the bank. As we'd planned, when the security guard signed us in, Benedict introduced me as a new potential customer without revealing my name. The guard didn't ask for it either. I shook his hand and flashed my best smile. I was wearing a face mask, a tartan one as it happens. The guard peered at the mask, letting his eyes wander down to the kilt. He didn't say anything. Benedict led me through to the security office, had a quick chat with the other guard who didn't bat an eyelid at the sight of an eccentrically dressed fake celebrity. He took Benedict's advice and popped off for a tea break. Once the two of us were alone, I glanced at my phone and spotted a WhatsApp message from Uncle Claude saying, Thank you for the gift, Frank. How thoughtful. Wondering what gift he was referring to, I clicked on the message and realised... Claude had forwarded three or four pictures of himself wearing an identical kilt to the one I had on. His face mask couldn't disguise his beaming grin. I couldn't quite figure out how Claude had leapt to the conclusion that the kilt was for him, but I was happy to see how pleased he was. Benedict logged onto the computer and did whatever it was that needed to be done to disable the cameras on the upper and lower floors, replacing the feed running through the monitors with some generic footage from a previous day. In accordance with our plan, the footage from the middle floor was left untouched. While Benedict sat tapping at his keyboard with a reassuring confidence, I stood watching the monitors for the bank's large recreation room. It reminded me of my old student union bar. There was a dartboard, a pool table, plus an actual bar, situated next to a small DJ booth. Beyond that, at the very edge of the room, were a pair of feet leaning against the wall. The owner of the feet was slightly beyond the reach of the cameras. 
Sorry to interrupt, Benedict, I said after a while. I don't suppose you recognise those feet. Don't worry, he said, not looking up. It's Scarzi's booking. That'll be him. What if it isn't? I said. Please do stay in character, said Benedict. Trust me, it's easier that way. OK, I said, modifying my voice. What if it isn't it? You've studied each of the members, right? He said. Right. Come on, Marty, we've been through this a thousand times. Who's Marty? I said. You are. Oh, yeah. Benedict was absolutely right. We had indeed been through every possible outcome many times. I'd picked hypothetical fights with a whole host of acting talent. Jason Isaacs happened to be the one I was prepared for the most. He was the one I pictured each time I envisaged that day. A couple of minutes later, the pair of feet shifted forward. I got to see his legs. Are they Jason Isaac's legs? I said. I'm busy, Benedict whispered. Then the feet shifted forward some more. Oh, I said. What? said Benedict. Carry on, I said. Is something wrong? Nothing that can't be solved with a little improv, I said. Just finish off your jiggery-pokery and we can get into it. As it happens, my jiggery-pokery is finished, so... Benedict stopped talking as he looked up at the screen. We stood in silence for a while. In a way, this is quite a good result, said Benedict. I see what you mean, I said. A challenge, for sure, but doable. We stood and watched the figure on the screen, pacing across the recreation room floor. He had what appeared to be a bowl of soup in his hand. He sipped casually on the spoon as he wandered across the room. I thought I could smell something slightly off, Benedict muttered. I don't smell it yet, I said. You will. Wait until you get close up. I suppose I'd better fill you in on the details. I've been avoiding this, but it's a necessary disclosure at this point. The actor we were watching on the screen was Famous Man Who Cannot Be Named For Legal Reasons. The reason why Famous Man Who Cannot Be Named For Legal Reasons is referred to as Famous Man Who Cannot Be Named For Legal Reasons is, well, strictly speaking, Famous Man Who Cannot Be Named For Legal Reasons was not breaking any laws. However, if the details of Famous Man Who Cannot Be Named For Legal Reasons private pastime were made public, there would be a massive scandal, the likes of which have potentially never been seen before. This story would either be suppressed by the actor's lawyers or it would become famous itself for entirely the wrong reasons. That is to say, people would start downloading it simply because it contains some gruesome details about a famous man's private life. I personally wouldn't want that. But that's not the reason I've decided not to disclose this man's identity. The truth is, I can't be bothered dealing with the hassle. If I were to name him, he would no longer have a career. That in itself wouldn't be the end of the world. He's rich enough to have comfortably retired years ago. But if I ended up being the man who ended famous man who cannot be named for legal reasons career, he would literally have nothing better to do with his time than make my life a misery for the rest of our days. You could accuse me of taking the easy way out and you'd be correct in that assumption. It's much easier than taking the difficult way out. If the only way is out, I'll take the easy one every time. I suppose the reason I'm getting caught up in semantics is that, once again, I'm delaying having to tell you about famous man who cannot be named for legal reasons, cannibalism. There you go, I said it. Famous man who cannot be named for legal reasons eats human flesh. Not just a little bit of human flesh, a lot of human flesh. He's been doing it for years. And once again, allow me to stress, he isn't actually breaking any laws. 
he isn't killing anyone. He's simply eating the flesh of people who tacitly agreed to be eaten in the first place. My understanding of how this process works is as follows. A certain percentage of the general population have donated their bodies to medical science so that after their deaths they can be used to further our own understanding of ourselves. This is a fairly low percentage. Lots of people are organ donors, but very few people have specifically donated their bodies for medical research. A certain percentage of the population are huge fans of famous men who cannot be named for legal reasons. When I say huge fan, I mean the sort of person who can confidently quote his shoe size without hesitation. The vast majority of people have heard his name in conversation. Most people will have seen at least one of his films at some point in their lives. A smaller proportion of the population actively identify as fans of famous men who cannot be named for legal reasons. Then there are the super fans, which, bearing in mind Jamie's hula hoop principle, are arguably one of the principal factors behind this man's phenomenal success. Famous man who cannot be named for legal reasons has now become so famous, there are people who occupy both of these two distinct groups of people. The first group being people who have donated their bodies to medical science, and the other group being the aforementioned superfans. Famous man who cannot be named for legal reasons has set up his own private medical research project, which requires the use of medical corpses. His research team has access to all sorts of dubiously but also legally sourced information. They can identify a famous man who cannot be named for legal reasons superfan. From this group, they can extrapolate a much shorter list of superfans who have expressed an interest in donating their bodies for research purposes. This may indeed be the much shorter list, but it nonetheless contains thousands of names. Every single person on this list has been directly contacted by famous man who cannot be named for legal reasons, presumably to universal delight. Being superfans, they have already handed over their contact information via fan mail or social media. When asked the question, would you consider taking part in my new science programme, the answer was an enthusiastic yes. From this point, all famous man who cannot be named for legal reasons had to do was to have his legal team arrange for the paperwork to be signed and then wait for each respondent on the list to die. So here we were, watching famous man who cannot be named for legal reasons, sipping on a soup spoon. Looks like his fan club is recently minus one, Benedict mumbled. Surely not, I said. From where I'm standing, he doesn't look much like a k. I could only manage to utter the first letter of this particular C word. This is the starter, said Benedict. He'll have a chef with him. That van we saw when we parked up. That won't be security. That'll be famous man who cannot be named for legal reasons, mobile kitchen. Jesus Christ. To be honest, it's quite good to see you're angry. Why wouldn't I be? I snapped. What I mean is, this will prove useful for the fight. At this moment, I feel more like punching you, I said seriously. You know what you are. What's the word for the thing that you are? I'm an enabler, said Benedict helpfully. Yes, that's what you are. Benedict turned his back on me, facing the corner of the room. I'm aware of that, he said quietly. I'm not proud of it, but this is where we are. Getting ahead in this industry sometimes means turning a blind eye to certain things. Certain things, I said. Yes, Benedict hissed at the corner of the room. Certain things. However awkward or inconvenient those things happen to be. What are you saying? 
What else have you turned a blind eye to over the years? Nothing, he bellowed at the corner. Nothing. Isn't this enough? More than enough, thanks, I said. Benedict turned around. I'm not sure if he noticed, but there were tears in his eyes. Good, he said. Let's drop this bank, shall we, Frank? Uh, I said, yes, OK, let's do it. So off Benedict popped to the vault to unload his pre-prepared boxes of fake notes and replace them with the real money and then carry the boxes up the stairs to the van. Remember, I told you about the plan. I had precisely five and a half minutes to introduce myself to famous man who cannot be named for legal reasons and get on his bad side to the extent that all four security guards would be compelled to enter the room with us. From that point, I had a further six minutes, a total of 360 seconds, in which to take up 100% of all four security guards' attention. I'd rehearsed this scenario many times, knowing as I did the weak spots of each member of Brollywood Bank. If this had been Jason Isaacs and his puppet theatre, I'd have had a much easier ride. But here I was, faced with an actual cannibal. From the outside, I suppose, this looked like an easy fight. Surely you would think, all I'd need to do is call this guy out on his cannibalism, accuse him directly of being a cannibal, watch his reaction and take it from there. The trouble is, I had no idea how this conversation would have gone down. Maybe he'd be completely unrepentant. Maybe he'd deny the whole thing and threaten me with legal action. In any case, this was too much of an unpredictable scenario. Luckily, if that's the right use of the word, we had a solution. We'd planned for this. We knew there was a possibility that famous man who cannot be named for legal reasons would be there that day. As Benedict had noted, he did have a habit of making last-minute bookings based on the unexpected death of a superfan. The question was, if cannibalism wasn't the right subject to challenge this man on, what was his weak spot? The answer was very simple. At the height of his fame, famous man who cannot be named for legal reasons was turned down for a role in the 1998 movie Lost in Space in favour of the sitcom star Matt LeBlanc. According to rumour, despite the film's lack of critical and commercial success, famous man who cannot be named for legal reasons considers Lost in Space to be the greatest setback of his career. And if that didn't work, I had cannibalism as a fallback. I never expected I'd have to say that last sentence, but there we have it. The original plan involved Benedict accompanying me into the recreation room and formally introducing me to the celebrity in question before making his excuses. Considering the man we'd been lumbered with, we both agreed the best strategy was for Marty to enter the room alone, taking our opponent somewhat unawares, immediately unsettling him. So that's what we did. I strode into the room and nodded casually at famous man who cannot be named for legal reasons. Nice to meet you in the flesh, my good man, I said. My opponent gazed at me suspiciously over his bowl of soup. In the flesh, he said. Is that a joke? No pun intended, I said. Our good friend Mr Cumberbatch filled me in on your little kink. Crack on, mate. We're all friends here. Did I ask for your permission? He said. Not to be rude, but who are you? I chuckled. <laughs> it's fine, I get that a lot nowadays. I'm what they call a has-been. I'm guessing I can help myself to one of these. I gestured towards the bar. As you say, he said, crack on. I will. 
I whipped off the tartan face mask and flashed him a smile. I grabbed a whiskey glass and poured a couple of shots in there. Still don't recognise me, do you? I said. I'll put you out of your misery. I'm Marty Pello, for my sins. Aren't you a recovering alcoholic? He said. Am I? The words just popped out of me. I covered it up with a smile. I still have my off days. Don't tell my sponsor. Or my manager. I listened to the sound of my own voice, contemplating the bizarre possibility that famous man who cannot be named for legal reasons knew more about Marty Pello than I did. My lips are sealed, he said. How did you hear about this place, anyway? I thought we were only open to the acting community. Musical theatre! I exclaimed, a little too clearly delighted to hear he wasn't quite the expert I'd feared he was. I've done your blood brothers, your levita, your... It's fine, I don't need your CV, he said. Welcome to the club. Good to hear you're not too much of a has-been. Aye, I'm probably a little too hard on myself, I said. It's the music biz that does that, young man's game and all that. I say to hell with it. I've chosen to go grey. Salt and pepper, as the saying goes. I like it, you know. Nothing artificial going on there. That's one of the many reasons I admire that Matt LeBlanc. Like, he was probably advised against it, you know. That's certainly what my management said. Maintain that same look from your heyday. What's the actual point of that? The man's an actor, you know. A very good one, too. Have you ever met him, by the way? I haven't, said famous man who cannot be named for legal reasons, before glugging down the last few drops of soup from the bowl. Excuse me, I'm going to take a seat. Main course on the way. He stationed himself at a small table in the corner of the room. I followed him, maintaining a healthy social distance. I stood over him, sipping on my whisky. Hope I wasn't insulting you there, by the way, I said. Goes without saying, you're damn good yourself. Don't worry about me, he said. Dermatologically speaking, you need a thick skin to work in this industry. Don't you just, I said. I was just saying, like, you're a leading man, and someone like LeBlanc, he's more of a character actor, you know, like, he could play any kind of role you gave him. He should have had a much bigger movie career. Oh, come off it, he said. Character actor, Christ, he's hardly Ben Kingsley. He's a pretty boy who had the good fortune to be cast in a hit TV show. He was great in Ed, I said. Ed, what is that? Baseball film from the 90s, the one about the chimp that plays baseball. He plays a chimp? No, he plays alongside the chimp. It takes proper versatility to do that, you know. No, it doesn't, and with all due respect, what do you even know about film acting anyway? Ever done any? I've done 30-odd music videos. Trust me, those things are gruelling. Right, well, come back to me when you've done 30-odd features, and then we'll talk about Matt LeBlanc. I'll tell you what film he was really good in, though. Please don't. Maid course has arrived. I turned to see a waiter in a tuxedo carrying a silver tray with an immaculately polished silver cloche over the top. The man marched right past me and stuck the silverware down on the table. I had a couple of seconds to brace myself. The waiter pulled the cloche away and promptly left the room. Famous man who cannot be named for legal reasons sat back, inhaling the big waft of steam. I couldn't look directly at it. Benedict was right about the smell. I'd always been told human flesh tasted like chicken, and maybe it did. But let me assure you, 
In case you've never been up close and personal with a human steak dinner, it doesn't smell like chicken. I'm not sure what it smells like. I don't want to have to describe it to you. All I can say is, it turns out, pouring myself a whiskey was worth it after all. I buried my nose in the glass. Luckily, famous man who cannot be named for legal reasons had his eyes closed as he basked in the glory of the centrepiece of his ritual. A moment later, his eyes snapped open. He grabbed his knife and fork. I realised he was actually drooling a little bit. Well, I said, I'd better leave you to your meal. I'll just pop off and nuss my whiskey and wait for Benedict to continue the tour. If you wouldn't mind, he said. As I walked off, I called casually over my shoulder. Lost in space. I stationed myself at the bar, at the far end of the room to famous man's table. When I turned around, I realised he was standing right next to me. Two metres, if you wouldn't mind, I said sharply. Lost in space, he said. That's all I was going to say, I said. That's the film Matt LeBlanc was particularly good in, I thought. Almost as good as he was in the chimp baseball movie. Famous man did not back away. You're new, he said. So let's just get a couple of things straight, right? There are two things we don't talk about under this roof, OK? One of them is the American situation comedy star Matt LeBlanc. The second is the film you just mentioned. Please do not mention it again. Trust me. I said, I wouldn't have brought it up if I'd have known it were a problem. Really? He said. Who put you up to this? What do you mean? I mean, he said, there are two things we don't talk about in here. Of all the conversational topics you could have picked, you went for both of them. That is not a coincidence. This was all going well so far. The main consideration at this point was the time. By my own internal calculations, with all the toing and froing from one side of the room to the other, plus the time it took for the waiter to serve up the food, we should have killed around four and a half minutes. This was the crucial 60-second window. The last thing I wanted was for famous man who cannot be named for legal reasons to return to his table and start eating. And so I said, Your food's getting cold, pal. Don't change the subject, he snapped. No one's put me up to this, I said. I have absolutely no idea what you're talking about. It's not really my fault if you're jealous of Matt LeBlanc. I am not jealous of Matthew Lay, whatever his name is. The man screamed in my face. I really must insist on you maintaining your distance, I said. Oh, we wouldn't want you to fall victim to the scamdemic, the man snapped. Great, I thought, a cannibal and a Covid denier to boot. Do you have some kind of personal stake in this lost in space thing? I said. You know I do, he yelled. Someone's told you. No one's told me anything. You've given it away. I should probably mention I'm a little bit psychic as well. Were you thinking about Matt LeBlanc when I came in by any chance? For some reason it just popped into my head. Famous man took one step closer. We were standing nose to nose. This was not part of the plan. We'd revised the whole thing with Noddy and the community based on health and safety protocols, but here we are. You can't just call a whole bank heist off just because someone's breaching social distancing guidelines. I pulled my tartan face mask back on. Let's call that a minute, I thought. He's a better actor than you, I said. Famous man who cannot be named for legal reasons then head-butted me right between the eyes. I fell to the floor. 
Before I'd managed to pull myself up to a seated position, all four security guards were in the room with us, one in each corner. Don't ask me how, but I recognised one of them from Hollyoaks. Some time must have passed. The blow to the head threw me off a little. I made a mental note to glance at my watch as soon as the opportunity arose. Then I realised I'd just been head-butted in the face and knocked to the floor. This was the perfect opportunity to glance at my watch. As it turns out, a mere 45 seconds had passed. Now came the challenging part. I had five and a quarter minutes to keep all four of them in the room. Luckily, it wouldn't be all that challenging. Remember earlier on when I said, and if that didn't work I had cannibalism as a fallback? Personally, I think it's one of the best lines in this story, which is partly why I've taken this opportunity to repeat it. I must confess, my use of those words isn't quite an accurate description of the plan as it stood. In the event of famous man who cannot be named for legal reasons being present during the heist, it was always our intention to use his cannibalism to our advantage. To be honest, the only reason I included the words and if that didn't work I had cannibalism as a fallback is that I like the sound of those words, which is why they've been used in this story a total of three times. What's going on? someone said. Kindly eject this man from the premises, said famous man as he massaged his own forehead. Eject me, I objected from my seat on the floor. This guy just attacked me completely unprovoked. I've got a good mind to get the cops down here. I'm sure they'll be very interested to see what goes on down here. Get rid of him, said famous man. Do not come anywhere near me, I commanded. I am a fully-fledged member of this bank now. My good friend Mr Cumberbatch can back me up. I'm going nowhere. The guards maintained their positions at the corner of the room, each of them looking from one to the other in a silent conversation about who to elect as their official spokesperson. Eventually, one of them ventured, Listen, chaps, we don't want any trouble. OK, let's just talk this through. What was this altercation about? Altercation, I said. He nutted me right between the eyes. Call a spade a spade, lads. This man was deliberately trying to antagonise me, famous man protested. What? I said. By mentioning Matt LeBlanc. Do not mention Matt LeBlanc in my presence again. You see what I mean? I said to the guards. He's deranged. Ed, for Christ's sake, famous man continued. What kind of film title is that anyway? He pulled his phone from his pocket and began furiously typing. If you're calling the corpse yourself, I expect you'll have some explaining to do, I said. I'm checking the details of your baseball-playing chimp movie to see how much of a classic it really was. I groaned slightly as I pulled myself back to my feet. Mate, I said, think about what you're saying for a moment. If I really wanted to get under your skin, surely waffling on about a baseball-playing chimp is the wrong way to go about it. Ha! Famous man pointed a finger right in my face. Zero percent on rotten tomatoes. Zero! What I'm saying is, if I wanted to wind you up, I could pull you up on your eating habits. Check this, he continued. Todd McCarthy from Variety wrote, Might tolerably amuse the under ten crowd, but will prove borderline intolerable for everybody else. Borderline intolerable! I know how he feels. Desson Thompson from the Washington Post wrote, the movie is breathtakingly unadventurous with its cheesy storyline, hackneyed ballpark fable sentiments, adorable 
animal and collection of one-dimensional human nincompoops headed by Matt LeBlanc. There's the critical verdict on your favourite actor, Mr Pellow, a one-dimensional human nincompoop indeed. But hush, I said. Stephen Holden of the New York Times said, Mr LeBlanc is so blank that the only impression he makes is of having teeth that are very large and unnaturally white. Now, that's just a petty insult about the man's appearance. You wouldn't like it if the critic were to describe you as decent actor apart from the defining physical characteristic redacted for legal reasons. Oh, so you're personally insulting me, he said, pocketing the phone and squaring up to me once again. As I've said, if I wanted to personally insult you, I wouldn't do it by commenting on your personal appearance. For one thing, you have what can only be described as movie star good looks. But the fact of the matter is, you also happen to be a cannibal. Am I? Am I? Is that what I am? Or is that what you are? You're happy to eat a chicken sandwich, right? I'm vegan, actually, I said, hoping to God Marty Pello also happens to be vegan. Sir, you eat fruit and vegetables, right? Aren't they living things, just like you and I? We're really doing this, I said. A philosophical debate about the ethics of eating human flesh. Why not? Okay, I said. Why don't we just make this into a round table discussion? I turned to the guards. Do you know about this, by the way, lad? Do you know what this man comes to Brollywood to do? Uh, the one from Hollyoaks began. Come on, I said. Don't be shy. Do you know this man eats human flesh or not? We're told not to ask questions, he said. Leave them out of it, said famous man. They're here to do a job. You're putting these men in an awkward position. No, I said, poking him in the chest with my finger, maintaining the possibility of a fist fight breaking out at any moment. You are putting them in an awkward position for one thing. They have to put up with a smell from that thing. I pointed to the plate in the corner of the room. Speaking of which, your meal's getting cold. Why don't you just tuck in? Forget about all this. What are you doing? He said. I'm trying to be nice. This is not the time for eating. The ambiance isn't right. It's okay, I said. We can make ourselves scarce and uh, conveniently forget what we've seen here today. What are you getting at? Nothing, I said. Although... Oh, here we go. I'm just wondering, what's stopping these guys from selling their story to the papers? They're not even getting paid, man. It's not like they owe you anything. They could make a mint from something like this. I could see how the actual bank members will happily keep your secret. More trouble than it's worth trying to expose something like this, but for a young, skint actor with nothing to lose. Come on, guys. You must at least have been tempted, right? For some reason... Famous man who cannot be named for legal reasons found this series of hypothetical questions highly amusing. Suddenly, he didn't appear to be angry anymore. He giggled like a school kid as he crossed the room and took a seat in front of his food. What's funny? I said. Famous man shrugged. Nothing really. It's a genuine question after all. Why doesn't anyone out me? I've been doing this for years. Why hasn't it happened yet? Good question, I said. You really don't know the answer, he said. Come on, Marty. You're a veteran of the music business. How much debauchery goes on behind closed doors that no one knows about? Fair point. Also, why hasn't anyone outed me yet is the wrong question. Many people have tried.
I have one of the most expensive legal teams in the Western world. Anyone attempts to spread rumours about me, they're shut down before they even began. And it goes without saying they'll be out of a job. That's not a veiled threat towards you fine young people, by the way, he added, nodding in turn to each corner of the room. You're intelligent young men, and I know you'll do the right thing. But just so you know, if you do decide to betray me, and I don't mean to sound like a billionaire mogul, but it goes without saying, you'll never work in this town again. Sounds like an explicit threat, if anything, I said. Shut your face, he said. I think we're done here, lads. I suggest you return to your stations. Nothing more to see here. And that could have been that. I'd done my job nicely, I thought. I'd successfully kept everyone in the building distracted while Benedict cleared the place out. But glancing at my watch, I realised there was at least 60 seconds on the clock. If the guards were to leave the room at this point, they were likely to collide with Benedict, hauling his final crate of banknotes up the stairs. There was only one thing for it. In a way, I was rather pleased it had come to this. I approached Famous Man's table, inspecting the silver tray his dinner plate was still resting on. For the first time, I got a good look at the meal up close. Objectively speaking, it all looked quite nice. Aside from the side order of pickled beetroot, that will probably leave a stain. Can I help you? Famous Man snapped. We're done here, right? I'm hungry. You're hungry? I said. Well, I am tired. Without further hesitation, I picked up the silver tray, held it over my head and hurled the whole thing against the wall. As predicted, the beetroot juice left a bright purple splatter right across the wall, dribbling down to encroach upon the signed Michael Caine photograph below. I paced casually across the room and poured myself another double whiskey. Famous man remained seated, his eyes fixed straight ahead, as though he'd been hypnotised. Er, uh, Mr Pello, is it? said one of the guards. Yeah, I said. I dare say my oeuvre is somewhat before your time. To be honest, I've never been 100% on the pronunciation of the word oeuvre, so adding a Scottish accent into the mix made it sound a bit blah. Not that it mattered, he got my meaning. I think I'm going to have to ask you to leave the premises? You think? I said. You don't seem too sure of yourself, my good man. I congratulated myself on my continued use of the words my good man. It wasted a whole three seconds. This was all about timing now. Let me rephrase that, he said. I definitely need to ask you to leave the premises immediately. Sounds better, my good man, I said. My honest response? You and whose army? Uh, well, Mr. Pello, he said, there are three of us and only one of you. Also, we're armed. You're surrounded by four men with guns. Not quite an army, I'll admit, but edging close to one, wouldn't you say? Good answer, my good man, I said, glancing at my watch once again. I'll come with you. I will. I promise. Couldn't we wait 15 seconds? Uh, not too much to ask, surely. I'm sorry about throwing the food at the wall. Needless to say, if there's any cleaning course, just get in touch with my management. We can sort something out. Just don't mention the whiskey. I suppose it's one of those things people in your position are asked to turn a blind eye to. I'm sorry about that. Anyway, 15 seconds are up. Let's hit the road. Maybe the music industry's very own Marty Pello isn't Brollywood material after all. I was hoping to mutter some cordial platitude to famous man who cannot be named for legal reasons on the way out, just to show there was no hard feelings, but I realised he was down on all fours 
eating his steak off the floor like a dog, so I left him to it. I couldn't resist the temptation to snap a quick picture. I realised later the image was too blurry to be of use to anyone, but I kept hold of it anyway. Maybe it will prove useful someday. All in all, I was extremely pleased with this whole spectacle. No one had questioned my identity. Famous man had responded exactly as I'd hoped he would. Manipulating the guards was child's play. Maybe I could make a career out of this. I don't mean robbing banks. On many occasions I'd listen to Benedict rambling on about the thrill of live performance and the transcendental bliss of embodying another man's persona. As the guards escorted me out of the front door, I could feel the adrenaline pumping through me. It felt as though I'd run a marathon and I was ready for another one. Benedict was waiting for me in the van. I jumped in beside him. Would you mind driving? I said. I've had a couple of drinks. Sorry, I was improvising. Turns out Marty's fallen off the wagon. I glanced across at Benedict. He was sitting in the passenger seat, head bowed, his hands gripping his knees in an attempt to stop them shaking. Oh, I said. What's happened? Take a look in the back, he said quietly. I jumped out of the van and opened up the back doors. I returned to the front and sat back down beside Benedict. What happened? I said. Where's all the boxes? Where's the money, mate? I can't talk about it now, he said. I'm happy to drive. You sure you're in a fit state? We're ten minutes from the hotel, he said. When we get there, I could use a stiff drink myself. Thank you for listening. You now have the choice of moving straight on to episode 9, the final part, or sticking around for the optional bonus content that will appear right after the theme song. It is called the footnote section. It is great fun. Check it out if you like, or I will see you in the final episode if you like what you've heard. Please visit my website, frankburton.co.uk, for more information about me and my work. I have another podcast called I Like the Sound. I've written several books, including the first two installments of the Ragback series, Everything I Am and Getting Away With It. I recently made a four-part podcast series with David Ebar from the band Herman Dune. It's called Not On Top, and I have to say, it is the best thing that you will ever hear in your life, full stop. See you all very soon.
footnote section. Here we go for episode eight. I think we're on episode eight anyway. I don't know. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm, record- I'm recording these completely um, separately from the rest of it, and I'm going to s- stitch it all together at the end. So hopefully it will make sense. I've even lost count on which episode I'm doing now, but there we have it. This is the um, unscripted section of the show, an optional extra if you will. I will I will um stress that at this late stage in the series this is an optional extra um you can skip straight on to episode 9 if indeed that is the next episode <laughs> or you can listen to me ramble about some stuff uh for however long it is that I decide to do it for are you up for that I had a I had a general idea about what to talk about this time I wanted to have a little chat about that feeling that you get, maybe you've had this feeling as well, where a hero of yours or someone that you greatly admire, they do something and that calls into question everything else that they've ever done. And suddenly you start seeing them in an entirely different light. That's happened a couple of times in the last couple of years with two of my great kind of heroes. I think I'm going to write something about this properly at some point rather than just... I'm going to start off by just uh, talking about it off the top of my head on this podcast and then at some point I might turn it into a proper uh, piece of writing because um, I've kind of got interested in um, expressing certain opinions about cultural figures who I may in the past have been slightly more reluctant to avoid slagging these people off in case <laughs> in case I get famous and, and end up meeting them and end up working with them or something like that you know um, I always kind of had this idea in my head that I was going to be globally famous writer slash podcaster slash whatever and um, I, it's kind of uh, <laughs> I've, I've realized that's very unlikely to happen but um, well who knows I don't know but um, and I, I, I definitely I don't think I should hold back really on talking about stuff that's on my mind. And, uh, you know, if if I do end up meeting these people um, uh, at some point, then I could just say these things to their face and it might be an interesting conversation. I'm sure they can take it. Why wouldn't they? As one of the characters in Brollywood says, dermatologically speaking, you have to have a thick skin to work in this business. Now, I stole that joke from somebody and I don't really know where it's from. It, an old work colleague of mine used to say it. And I, I know that he got it from somewhere because I don't think... <laughs> I don't think this, this particular person is the sort of person who would do that. He he would take somebody else's joke and pass it off as his. Um, he's absolutely the sort of person who would do that. Um, so I know that he got that from somewhere. We, we, he was in a sales job years ago. And he used to say it all the time. You're dermatologically speaking, Frank, you have to have a thick skin to work in sales, right? <laughs> and uh, it was it was just a uh, it's just an ongoing kind of uh, funny line that we used to use in in the office. I, I don't mean to slag this person off. He was a funny guy. He 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 actually was. Um, <laughs> he, he was funny when he's telling other people's jokes and he, he was just funny as a person so um uh, shout out to you know who you are if you're listening you know who you are don't you uh, <laughs> i'm not gonna say your name but um yeah cool um <laughs> i remember you i know we haven't spoken in, in many years <laughs> this, this is going well isn't it what was i saying i guess when when you've got 
there's certain people who you really admire you or you want to kind of find out more about them and you kind of read interviews with them and you read books about them and kind of see them on uh, documentaries and stuff like that whatever it is and you kind of find out as much information about this person as you can well without necessarily meaning to it's just that oh a documentary about that guy i'm going to watch that and then over time you just kind of build up this kind of store of knowledge about that person and then because you've got that knowledge about that person like if they if they suddenly do something wrong it's kind of like oh i see i see it all makes sense now <laughs> you know i see what you're doing why didn't i see that before one of those people <laughs> it's, the funny thing is i had uh when i started the the ragbag podcast i had a, a top three i had a list of people who i really wanted to do interviews with because i was doing interviews with musicians uh, when I started the Ragbag podcast, and the top three musicians that I had, one was David Eva from Herman Dune, who I did interview, and I interviewed. I'd, not only did I interview him twice on the Ragbag podcast, I made an, I made a whole four part podcast series with him and collaborated with him on it. And you know, I can happily call him a friend. It's amazing. Uh, shout out to David. Uh, you are in my top three, man. You believe that? Um, uh, the other one in the uh, the other one in the top three, the other two in the top three, uh, Pascal Pinon, who uh, absolutely love them. I think they're the best band in the world, and uh, unfortunately wasn't able to get them on the show. Uh, maybe <laughs> the offer's still open, guys. If you're listening, I know that you're not, but um, <laughs> or maybe you are, and you're laughing at me right now. So Pascal Pinon didn't get them, and the other one was Nick Cave, who I clearly was not going to get because he's a huge global star. Um, but, you know, may maybe I could have got really big myself and then got Nick Cave on. But even then I wouldn't be able to do it because he doesn't really do conventional interviews, does he? He kind of in engages with his fans in, in kind of uh, interesting ways, like through the Red Right Hand Files, is that what it's called, on his website? And he, he did a whole tour of uh, where he just went out and spoke to people. He yeah he did a whole speaking tour like a basically a big Q and A. He went around doing Q and A, and that was the entire show. Um, so that, that that I didn't actually go to that. I went to see him perform <laughs> with the Bad Seeds. I'd rather go and see him, you know, perform an actual gig. Um, in my opinion, rather than just see him talking, you know, if if I was an even more hardcore fan than I am, then I probably would have gone to that as well. Yeah, so what I'm trying to say is that I, I would never have got the opportunity to interview Nick Cave for the Ragbag podcast. Come on, it's not going to happen, is it? I mean, I I did get some some uh, famous people on there, you know, some proper, what I consider to be famous names anyway. Not necessarily household names. I mean, you know, get Elton John on or anything like that. But I got some, <laughs> I got I got some, some well-known people on, you know, and um, I was very impressed with myself, but... I, th I think uh, Nick Cave was outside of my catchment, if you like, just being realistic about it. But, of course, the reason why he was in the top three is that he's a huge hero of mine. You know, I just think he's, he's a, such an amazing songwriter and such an amazing performer. And uh, I could listen to Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. Well, not just Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, but his other projects as well everything from grinder man to the stuff that he's doing with warren ellis and um it's it's all just amazing stuff is is uh a unique individual and 
I, I, I will always think that, uh, despite despite uh, <laughs> the the kind of um, the switch in my opinion that happened recently, which is uh, I was reading an interview with you know whenever I see an interview with Nick Cave pop up, I'll click on it and you know see what he's got to say this time, you know, and uh, on this occasion, I was reading an interview with with Nick and his wife. And they were talking about, I can't even remember why they were being interviewed now, but he was talking about the day that he met his wife and the first time he laid eyes on her. And the way that he described the moment, that moment in time, it was it was the most preposterous thing I've ever read. <laughs> it was just the most ridiculous thing you could possibly say about another human <laughs> <laughs> a human being and um <laughs> i'm not, I'm not going to quote it now because i'm got like i say i think i'm going to write an actual proper thing and do i'll i'll include the full quote from this interview <laughs> and um just the, the way that nick cave described his wife it's something something <laughs> kind of went off inside my head and I started examining all of his songs based on this quote. <laughs> and because uh, he, he just write about women in a very interesting way. And kind of there's a lot of violence against women. There's a lot of kind of beautiful women being murdered in his songs, things like that. And it's all very dark and creepy and artistic. And but you wouldn't expect I don't know you wouldn't expect the person who wrote those songs to kind of hold the, <laughs> it's almost like the way that he was talking it was almost like a character in one of his songs you know and <laughs> so something just went off in my brain of oh actually he he actually is like that in real life damn these <laughs> he's a he's just like a really creepy a really creepy sort of lecherous maniac in real life it's, it's, it's not just that he writes these songs about people who are like that he actually is like that himself <laughs> i think since i read that i haven't actually listened to any of his and he's had two albums out since then him and warren ellis have had like two albums out and i haven't listened to them because i just can't take him seriously anymore it was just like the most ludicrous thing ever i mean maybe he was quoted out of context but i don't think he was you know and i've also kind of you know there's certain things that i've read on the red right hands files thing that i thought okay come on mate there there are bits on there that are just a bit clickbaity for me i think he's been accused of of being right wing now but i don't know whether he is i don't know whether you can call him that or not i know that he played tel aviv controversially and also he uh, he's done things like kind of defended Morrissey and defended um, the use of the homophobic slur in that Pogue song that comes out at Christmas. But that that is such a clickbaity thing to do. That That is the most kind of every single Christmas, there's the same kind of tabloid headlines about this word being used in the Pogue song, Fairy Tale of New York and... Either it's the left-wing press saying, oh, isn't it horrible that they're still playing this song with this word in? and Or it's the right-wing press saying, they're trying to ban this song, this great song. They're trying... <laughs> just because he uses this word. It's just, just the most kind of really hacky journalism 
whichever publication is doing it, whether it's a left-wing publication or a right-wing publication, is just kind of horrible journalism, really. And for somebody like Nick Cave to buy into that, I'm sure that he knows this as well. And he, I'm sure that he's just doing a little bit of self-promotion uh, just by saying, oh, I, I, I know, I'll, I'll talk about Shane McGowan saying that word. There are better ways of promoting oneself than to get involved in these these stupid kind of hacky, clickbaity online article nonsense. That's just that's that's what I think. But he was he wasn't. <laughs> the thing is that these kind of bigger things with him being perceived as being a right wing free speech warrior or playing Israel. I was kind of fine with that. <laughs> you know what I, mean? I don't necessarily agree with what he's doing, but I, I was fine with that. I, I wouldn't make me stop listening to his music just because he did those things. But because he said this weird thing about his wife, that completely changed everything for me. It's weird, isn't it? It's weird because, you know, because playing Tel Aviv, a lot of people call him like hypocritical or something, but he's he's never he's never written any songs like denouncing the Israeli government. Maybe he thinks the Israeli government are great. You know, maybe he wholeheartedly backs them, you know. I don't know what his political views are. He's not really a political songwriter. You know, he's never written a political song in his life, as far as I know. Not overtly political, anyway. I'm sure that there are kind of certain overtones to some of the stuff that he does but even then i can't i can't really think of a particular example of of nick cave being a oh, apart apart from god is in the house of course which is a great work of political satire it's weird that one isn't it it's the, it's the only kind of um political song of nick caves that i can think of really and it's such a such a great political song it's one of the greatest political songs of all time as far as I'm concerned, it's really funny, really hilarious song, but also just it can be enjoyed as a piece of music. You know, you can listen to if you don't speak English, you can listen to that song and just take it, take it in as as a great piece of music. But if you listen to the lyrics, it's so funny. It's so kind of bang on the nose of, of, of such a great exposition of that kind of small minded hypocrisy that exists within these kind of I guess you can call them sort of right-wing Christian communities and uh, it's uh, yeah a great song that one but apart from that I mean he, he just because he wrote God is in the house doesn't mean that he you know maybe maybe he thinks Israel's great and that's why he played Israel I don't know um, I you know I, I do know really he, he he said why he did it he he played Israel because why, why can't I do that? Why can't I do that? People in Israel want to come and see me, so why can't I play a show there? I think that's what he said anyway. He said something along those lines. I'm not quoting him directly. There you have it. And the the other one is the comedian Stuart Lee, who um, I'm a huge fan of. And you might be able to tell, I guess, from some of the stuff that I've written in the ragbag books, the way that kind of... Um, Stuart Lee kind of fictionalizes his own life on stage. It's kind of uh you could say that I'm doing kind of a, a similar thing with the Ragbag series. But um yeah, I mean that the, the, there is a certain level of 
influence there. I guess that um, I'm different. What I do is different enough to what he does that there aren't going to be people comparing the two of us. Not that anybody would, I, I suppose. But yeah, I mean, he's he's another one that who, um, you know, whenever there was a like a podcast episode out with him on, I'd, I'd click on that and kind of download it and listen to it and stuff like that. And he was on, he was on, um, it's been on tons of podcasts. He was on The Comedian's Comedian. He was on, he was on Scroobius Pip's show. He was on Brendan Burns' podcast years ago. Um, he was on the Richard Herring show like quite a few times and stuff like that. And um, yeah, recently, the last couple of years, I'd listened to, he was on the Adam Buxton show and I'd listened to him on Paul Chowdhury's podcast as well. So I'm just constantly listening to Dewitt Lee on different podcasts and stuff like that. And both of those, the, both of those last two, he said, I've never been on a podcast before. He did, he did. He said, if you listen to it, that's what he said. I think because he likes to project this idea that he's very much kind of uh, behind the times and he's he's not, he's not interested in the online world whatsoever and he's not interested in in kind of modern technology and things like that he plays vinyl records and he's he doesn't buy into kind of social he's not on social media for example anything like that and he just rejects all of that stuff but he started telling these lies about himself which is kind of uh, i just find it annoying I, I, yeah, I think on, on both of those things, he said that he's never been on a podcast before and he's, he's happy to be on this one. And he's only on it because he wanted to promote this documentary that he's made. And he wasn't on it to promote himself. I didn't like that kind of dishonesty that he was because I like the fact that that he's he, he does appear to be to be very kind of uh, open and honest about his work when you listen to interviews with him in. But then you start to question oh maybe maybe he maybe he isn't because because he talks about the character of Stuart Lee who is like a fictional character who he plays on stage and uh that Stuart Lee is different to the real Stuart Lee who you who you are talking to now in this interview um uh, but if if the interview version of him is fictional as well <laughs> and maybe he'll come out and say that at some point that the interview version of him is fictional as well which would be kind of an interesting thing to do but you know, it's just the dishonesty. It is. I'm not trying to catch him out here. Like you know, I, I just don't see why he's saying these things when, when they're factually incorrect. And I can see what he's doing. He's just trying to project this image of himself as this kind of anti, anti modern technology kind of guy. And he just you know talks about kind of the the purity of uh, getting on stage and talking. And it not being kind of recorded and not being written down. It's just kind of a, a kind of a pure experience, that sort of thing. But <laughs> that in itself is is kind of um, nonsense as well, because he, you know, he's, he's made TV shows and stuff like that. So where do you draw the line there? But I just couldn't take him seriously after that. And yeah, I haven't kind of watched anything, uh, any of his kind of newer stuff since then, really. And he was on there promoting the documentary that he made, and I was like, I'm, I'm, I don't, don't want to watch your documentary now. Now, now that I've heard you promote it, You're getting on my nerves. <laughs> I could do another one, couldn't I? Because I, I was um, the I've, I've got someone from the world of music, uh, i.e., Nick Cave. Someone from the world of co- comedy, um, Stuart Lee, and um, it, it is true that um, I recently read a, a Milan Kundera novel 
and uh, Milan Kundera, I was uh, I was greatly kind of influenced by him back in the day, I suppose, but in particular with the his book, um, The Unbearable Lightness of Being. And uh, this was referenced, seeing as this is the footnote section, I'll give you a footnote for uh, for an entirely different, <laughs> like, entirely different ragbag stories. So Kundera is mentioned in the book, Getting Away With It. He's part of a kind of a list of kind of uh, European writers who kind of reject the, what did I call it? Um, it sounded good at the time. Uh, the Anglo-American realist tradition. And he's kind of a, Condor is kind of a rejection of that, him and this the, the, this other set of writers who were in the list of, of other people. I can't, can't remember who else was in the list now. But Kafka and, you know, people of that caliber. Anyway, um, so Milan Kundera, I mean, you know, what can I say about him? You know, such an amazing writer and uh, I highly recommend that you check him out. But it's also true that um, I read... <laughs> One of his books recently, having not kind of uh, investigated his work for a good few years. And, uh, well, I, d I don't know. I mean, it just it, it just hasn't aged very well. It's it's very, very 20th century, particularly the, ra the way that he writes about women. And it's not that I'm not going to say that he's, he's writing about women in kind of a, a sexist way or, or anything like that. I wouldn't necessarily go that far I'd, I'd, it's just a very kind of 20th century uh, very sort of male 20th century way of describing female characters that is, is, is really kind of stamped all over so many of these books from that era if you go back and kind of uh, read some of these books from kind of uh, 30 or 40 years ago and the way that uh, these male writers are, are kind of describing the female characters in such a kind of flimsy one-dimensional and uh you know very much in terms of their bodies and you know the way that the way that they look the way that they move you know uh, very little about what they are like <laughs> as, as people you know it, it, it's all kind of about it's all kind of about sex really isn't it mate um, but, uh, yeah, so I guess when I'm writing this big piece about kind of, um, being disappointed by my heroes, I should include Kundera in that, but you know, it's, I, I don't necessarily want to sig single Kundera out, um, uh, from this cause you know, it's, it's such a, such a commonplace thing, I suppose, for books of that era. And that is just the way that that's the way that all all these kind of male writers would describe female characters. That was just part of the cultural makeup of the literary world. Unfortunately, I don't know how much that has changed. I know that I was reading something about Sebastian Folks recently said that he's going to stop. He's not going to write female characters and describe what they look like anymore because he's been criticised for doing so in the past. And that's very interesting, that, because it's one of my kind of rules for writing, and it has been for quite some time, is that I never say what a character looks like, whether they're female or male or whatever. Um, I don't describe what that person looks like, unless it's something that is integral to the plot. Like, I had to say that Noddy was bald uh, as part of the Brollywood story, because... There's, there's a whole thing about him wearing a wig, is there not? 
Why did I have to say that Noddy was bored? I had to say that Noddy was bored for some reason. I can't remember. <laughs> I can't remember why I had to say that now. And that's the first time I've said that. I, he's appeared. He appeared in the first book, and I didn't mention what he looked like. It just it, it just came up that he was bald in the, in the third one be, uh, because I had to say it. I can't remember why. <laughs> if you've you've been listening to this series, haven't you, listeners? You tell me. You tell me why I had to say that he was bald. <laughs> I just had to say it, but it's very interesting that that uh, people are now because when I was um, studying creative writing years ago, I, I was very adamant that I wasn't going to do this, and um, I had um, quite a few people saying to me, people who were kind of I, w- I was workshopping things with, and also uh, my one of my tutors was very against this idea that I had. I said I'm not going. I basically just said I'm not going to describe what these characters look like. I think it's. I just I just think of things in terms of audio as well. I've I've only been podcasting for a, a few years, but I've been writing for much longer than that, and I've had this rule in place for much longer than that. But I just kind of think in terms of audio because you wouldn't like on the radio if it was a radio drama, you wouldn't. No, nobody says what the characters look like, do they? In radio, that you just imagine what they look like, and it's just that I think that ought to be the same in books as well. You just um. You describe characters in terms of of the things that they say and the things that they do. And maybe you could say how old they are or something like you know, give an impression give some biographical detail in terms of, you know, wh- where that person is from or, or what kind of generational group they are from or it's kind of you know, r- roughly what kind of racial group they're from, I guess. I mean it's I I, I do like the idea of you know, a, a lot of my characters aren't necessarily white, but I don't say I say that they're white or whether they're not white. I just because I, I don't say what they look like. So, how would you know, unless somebody points it out, unless it's relevant? You know, if it's not relevant to um, describe somebody in terms of their appearance, who cares what color they are? You know, that's what I think anyway. Call me um, call me a freak. Where was I going with this? I don't know. <laughs> oh, no, um, I was going to, because um, I had another example popped into my head of, of somebody who, um, yeah, I don't mean to slag this writer off because I think he's great. I just think it's interesting. I do highly recommend uh, Orhan Pamuk's work, the Turkish writer, Orhan Pamuk, really a great writer, really interesting. And um, it, I think he's a Nobel prize winner so he doesn't necessarily need frank burton's seal of approval you know what i mean i think he's i think he's got it going on he's got his nobel prize uh all he needs now is just some some guy rambling at the end of his podcast to give him a proper endorsement <laughs> uh i can imagine he's listening now thinking oh thank god frank burton's finally given his seal of approval on my work it's what i've been waiting for <laughs> All of these years. <laughs> I read um, one of his novels recently. Um, it's called The Museum of Innocence. Such an interesting book. Quite powerful in its own way. And it's um, there's a particular bit that um, I feel like he, with this particular section in this book, he's he's doing what I've been trying to do with the ragbag books, but he's doing it in he's doing it in a in a much more sophisticated way. <laughs> Because he's kind of using kind of real events and real kind of um, things that happened in the cultural sphere and applying them to this kind of story. And he's saying that oh, 
this might seem weird, but this is what the culture was like at this particular time. So he was talking about that the character, he's obsessed with this uh, woman and he keeps on going round to her house to have dinner with her and her family with a view to kind of uh, at some point getting married to her I suppose I don't know um I can't remember I can't remember the full story now but um yeah he keeps on going around to this woman's house and having dinner with her and her parents and and what he says is this might seem like weird behavior but what you have to understand is this could only have happened at this particular point in Istanbul's history it was the early 80s, I think, and he was saying that this happened in the early 80s. It couldn't have happened before the early 80s because society was too conservative for a young unmarried man to go round to another unmarried woman's house and have dinner with her and her parents every night. We would have been shunned. And it couldn't have happened after that because everyone would have just thought I was a stalker. <laughs> Uh, but you know he he said it in a much more sophisticated way than that and he, and he he gave like a a real kind of proper insight into what society was like at that time and he applied what was going on in society with what was going on in kind of this this small story about these two people this this man who's obsessed with this woman it's it's kind of what i'm trying to do you know in in lots of ways with the uh you know for, with the brollywood story for example it's kind of i'm having this kind of um you know silly story about the bank heist that's going alongside this very serious story about the global pandemic and having those two things kind of occurring side by side it, it's kind of a, you know it's, it's an interesting way of doing things and i've been trying to do that the whole time with the other books as well and i'm going to continue to kind of do that i'm i'm just saying that orhan panuk kind of does it better than me <laughs> does that particular aspect of it better than me anyway particularly in, in that section that i described but also that you know the the way that women are described in that book you know, it's basically like i say it's about about a man who's obsessed with a woman and that's kind of the premise of the whole book really and it's again it's just like the the female characters are, are so kind of non-existent really i mean they, they only um exist as these kind of fairy tale figures in this guy's head you know and it, it i'm not saying that it's he's doing anything wrong here it's, it's not i don't think that he's a mis you know i don't think pamuk is a misogynist or anything like that and i don't think it's a sexist book it's just that i really love the book um museum of innocence but there's also something about it that I just feel I'm just beginning to feel really tired of these male writers writing about women in this way, in this sort of uh, really kind of one dimensional kind of no personality and no. Uh, but I, I think that's the point of a story, though. The point of a story is that it's uh, he's kind of in love with the idea of this woman. And it's all about the man that the whole thing, the whole story is about him. I guess that's what I'm tired of, really. I guess I'm tired of reading about blokes and their obsessions with sex or the accumulation of wealth or whatever it is, you know. 
I'd like to get more kind of properly invested in female characters. And um, it's this is I'm thinking about this quite a lot because the fourth just to give you an insight into what I'm writing at the moment is that the fourth ragbag book is again it's going to be all about the man because Frank Burton is the narrator of the book and he's talking about his own life so that's just the way that it goes but it's also going to be kind of examination of like the women in Frank's life and the way that he relates to them but also the way that he describes them in his books and it's going to there's going to be a certain level of self kind of critique about why am I why am I describing this woman in this way and it, it becomes a little bit kind of self-conscious about I have to write about this woman in this way because that's what she was like you know and all this sort of thing you know um uh, so that's that's something to look forward to guys isn't it there's going to be jokes in there as well <laughs> there's going to be fun stuff but there is going to be um yeah i, I guess that the, the next ragbag book it doesn't have a title yet it's going to be it's going to be very funny and entertaining but also there there is going to be this kind of serious side to it where i'm going to just have like an exploration of male writers writing about female characters and what can we do about this what can be done to um you know it's not just a matter of uh Sebastian folks saying that okay I'm not going to I'm not going to tell you what the female characters look like anymore which is it's a nice gesture but maybe you have to do more than that Sebastian <laughs> maybe Sebastian you have to do a little bit more than that I mean I don't know maybe he is doing more than that I don't know but it just that in itself is is kind of an empty gesture if you don't do more than just <laughs> If all he's doing, I'm not saying this is what he's doing, but if all he's doing is just deleting like sentences where he describes a woman's breasts or <laughs> he uh, describes a woman's flowing hair or something like that and just takes that out instead of writing about it, you know. <laughs> if that's all of he's doing, it's a bit of a pointless exercise, really. You might as well just keep it in. You have to have proper female characters with, you know, give them the same level of respect that you would the male characters. It's really as simple as that. I'm, also, I'm just letting you know that as well because they, I'm fully aware that the Brollywood, the podcast, and also the the book that's going to come out is very, very, very male-heavy. It's a very male book. It's got you know frank and noddy and benedict and uncle claude and all of these male characters and there's only really is there only one female character in this there's just glinda and nobody else is that right i think that i think possibly that is right i think glinda is the only female cat only proper female character in this one that's just the way it goes isn't it i mean the the <laughs> i'm not going to apologize that's just the way it is i mean the um getting away with it the the kind of the main character was female or kind of you know frank was still the main character i suppose because he was the narrator but really it was jenna who was the main character and it's about about this female character who was kind of the the main focus of that book so you know I'm, i feel like i'm trying to justify you know i shouldn't be doing this i shouldn't be trying to justify it it's just uh, this is a book about the male world get over it <laughs> you know what i mean because um it wouldn't work if it wasn't that in a way brollywood is a story about men trying to find their place in the world as men 
and it's about male friendships one one male to another male heterosexual male friendships i guess but then uh, sexuality doesn't really come into it i don't suppose maybe there is some kind of homoerotic element to it i don't think there is i think that they're, they're all heterosexual men relating to each other in um the way it goes i mean i've done the, the central character in everything I, I am is a gay man. Again, I feel like I'm justifying the fact that I'm just writing about heterosexual men. I shouldn't have to justify that, should I? But uh, they, there I am, justifying it. Yeah, I wrote about a gay man in the first book, so third one, it's all about straight guys. <laughs> Can't deal with it. <laughs> well, it doesn't matter, does it? It just doesn't matter. Well, it's just about people. It's a book about people. There you have it. I'm just talking myself into a corner here. I don't know. Really, I'm rambling now. Um, and I've been going on. I've just seen the timer. I've been going on for way too long as well. I'm going to have to cut some of this out. I'm going to, I'm going to have to sign off. I've been talking for so long. And I've, I'm sure I've lost the thread of what I was trying to say. Um, I, I did, you know, I, I think I've said everything that I was supposed to say about kind of... Um, being disappointed by your heroes, etc., etc. I will turn this into a proper piece of writing. Perhaps I will. Maybe I'll forget um, because I'm doing other things. I don't know. But I will see you in the next one. The next episode is the last one. And then, oh, actually, I'll do an episode 10 uh, because episode 10 is going to be uh, a proper kind of deep dive into the actual nuts and bolts of the story itself, of the uh, Brollywood story. So... If you're interested in how I put the story together and all that sort of thing, then episode 10 is for you. It's going to be um, Ragbag's Fourth Wall, as I call it. Uh, the uh, the author, Frank Burton, is going to be uh, sticking his head through the fourth wall and, and talking very much about kind of uh, all the deceit and confusion that has gone into uh, trying to make you believe that all of these things happened when they didn't. <laughs> It's uh, it's a work of fiction. I'm popping my head up now. I'm just just telling you that. Well, Uncle Claude says it at the start, doesn't he? Uh, this is a work of fiction. So um, you know, uh, and it is. It is a work of fiction. Um, we we have to be honest about these things, don't we? Don't we, Stuart? We have to be honest about <laughs> about these things. Okay. I'm I'm going. Oh, why do I keep talking? Why can't I just stop talking? Um, it's such a chatterbox. Just turn your turn your gob off. Uh, just sign off properly. Okay, right. I I will see you. I will see you all soon. <laughs>